0: A man with dull red hair and sleepy eyes stalked retail stores along Interstate 70 between Indianapolis and Wichita. He selected businesses that were under-trafficked and understaffed. He surveyed shops from the parking lot, looking through plate glass to determine. If the potential victim fit his profile, he would pretend to be a customer, casing the interior of the building to determine if they were truly alone. Then he would ambush his victim with a 22 caliber pistol escorting them out then executing them with a shot to the back of the head. He came to be known as the I-70 killer claiming six victims within a month. Some speculate. He is connected to another spree of killings in Texas, where he is known as the I-35 killer at the time of investigations. Some detectives describe these cases as going cold. As soon as the crime was committed, they were left with few leads. And even fewer suspects. These cases have remained unsolved for decades to this day. The I-70 killer has not been caught. The St. Charles Police Department in Missouri renewed their investigation efforts in October 2021, reuniting a task force between multiple state and federal agencies. They plan to re-examine thousands of case files, tucked into 10 cabinet drawers within the walls of the precinct building. They will review all the evidence they have on the six murders that occurred in 1992 along Interstate 70, and the three murders that occurred in 1993 along Interstate 35. The story of the I-70 killer begins with Robin Foldar. On April 8, 1992, Robin Foldar, age 26, had to cover the afternoon shift at Payless Shoe Source when one of her employees called off. She was the manager and the store only had two full-time employees with several part-timers. The limited staff meant this wasn't her first time being called in, and she would likely have to work the store alone located on the outer edge of Indianapolis at Pendleton Pike. The store lacks security measures. There were no cameras or alarm systems. The only precaution was a buzzer that notified employees when someone entered the store. Police are uncertain of the specifics of that afternoon. They would later review transactions conducted at the register to determine a timeline. The last purchase occurred at 1.12pm, including one pair of men's shoes and one pair of women's shoes. Police believed that shortly after, the victim was escorted to the storage room in the back of the building. There, she was fatally shot with a 22 caliber pistol. The perpetrator emptied the register and left through the rear exit in the passing hours. Potential customers arrived and seeing the store unattended, they stole shoes, unaware of the poor young woman laying dead at the back of the store. It wasn't until a worker from the Speedway gas station next door arrived that she was finally discovered, although the register likely couldn't have contained more than a few hundred dollars. The operating theory for police was that this was a robbery gone wrong. However, this would soon come to change. Patricia Smith and Patricia Majors, aged 23 and 32, worked at LeBron Bridal Shop at 4613 East Kellogg in Wichita. Kansas Majors owned the store with her husband and Smith was a part-time employee who was working as a bridal consultant while pursuing a degree. The store was scheduled to close at 6 p.m. that night. However, the two women planned to stay late for a male customer who needed to pick up a cummerbund. Smith's husband, Norman, was waiting up for her. And when she didn't return home after work at 6.15 p.m., he called the store. There was no answer. Police believe the two women opened the doors to a man thinking their customer had arrived. Tragically, it was the I-70 killer armed with a 22 caliber semi-automatic firearm. He led the two women to the back of the bridal shop, to a room that served as a work area and office. It was there that he shot both women in the back of the head. The perpetrator emptied the register. And as he was fleeing the store, he encountered the male customer who had arrived to pick up his cummerbund. He ordered the man into the store at gunpoint. But in an act of defiance, the man refused and fled the scene. Luckily without incident. This witness would later provide police with a sketch of the perpetrator. He was described as 5'7 and 150 pounds with dull red hair cut short. His face was stubbled. The police matched ballistics at the scene with those found with full dour, and law enforcement knew they were dealing with a serial killer. Yet another victim, Michael McKell. Age 40 was working at Sylvia's Ceramic Shop on April 27, 1992, located at 2615 South 3rd Street in Terre Haute. The store belonged to McCown's mother, but yet again with no video evidence or witnesses. Detectives have tried to recreate the chain of events. It's likely that McCown was directed by a customer to retrieve a small, ceramic house on a shelf behind the counter. When he turned to grab the house, he was shot at close range to the back of the head, some sources cite gunpowder stippling at the wound suggesting the barrel at the gun was less than four inches away. The register had not been emptied and $15 remained in McCown's pocket. However, his wallet was gone. The slaying of Michael differed in many ways from the I-70 killer. McCown was the sole male victim, and he was not escorted to a back room. It has been widely reported that McCown had long hair and an earring at the time of death, suggesting he could have been mistaken for a woman. However, this has been called into question. One of his sisters revealed that McCohen had short hair at the time of the killing. At such close range, it would be difficult to mistake his gender. These differences suggest the I-70 killer could have been more opportunistic than originally profiled. McCown may not have fit the preferred victim profile, but he was slain. Anyway it may also suggest that the I-70 killer was less spontaneous than originally believed. It's important to note that Sylvia's store was typically operated by his mother. Perhaps the store had been surveyed at a previous date, identifying McCown's mother as a preferred victim, only to discover her son at the register on April 27. Nancy Kitzmuller, age 24, managed Boot Village, a western footwear shop in St. Charles, Missouri, just outside St. Louis. She had recently graduated with a degree in geography from Oklahoma State, and she was weeks away from starting a job with the Defense Mapping Agency. She was filling in for an employee who had called off and her shift started at noon that day. The store was located between a beauty salon and veterinary clinic in Bogey Hills Plaza. On that day it was busy with shoppers. Witnesses spotted Kitzmuller helping a customer at 2.30pm. They described him as medium-height with dull red hair. Only minutes later, she was found by customers in the office at the rear of the store. She had been shot in the head. A small amount of cash was missing from the register, but the perpetrator had already fled the scene. On May 7, 1992, Sarah Blessing, age 37, opened the store of many colors around noon. The New Age shop was located in Raytown, Missouri, near Kansas City. It was located in the Woodson Village Shopping Center. It was typically open with only one employee at a time. At 6.15 p.m., Tim Hickman, the owner of a VHS store that neighbored the store of many colors, spotted an unidentified man loitering in the area. He was described as having dark hair, wearing a tweed jacket that would have been too warm for the weather. Hickman later heard a pop through the cinder block walls that separated their stores. He spotted the man exiting the many colors store until he walked around the corner and disappeared behind the building. Hickman found Blessing face down in the back room of her store with a gunshot wound to the head. His eyewitness account gave police another opportunity to create a sketch, hoping it would drum up more leads. More than two other witnesses would spot the man, just a mile away from Interstate 70. The six murders along Interstate 70 were connected through ballistics. The perpetrator had used the same 22 caliber ammunition and pistol in all six killings. The victim profiles matched for all but McCown. The killer was hunting female store clerks, young brunettes, and he was murdering them execution style. This wasn't about robbery. This is the end of the spree for the I-70 killer. However, many believe he continued his killings a year later and just a few states away. Marion Glasscock, age 51 owned and worked the register at Emporium Antiques in Fort Worth, Texas. The store was located at 4709 Bryce near Interstate 35. Glasgow found a repairman to reschedule an appointment as she would be running late. Robert Johnson arrived at the store at 11.30 in the morning and found a female customer waiting outside. She told him that she had been knocking, but the store appeared to be closed. Johnson entered the unlocked store and found Glasgow, partially nude with her pants pulled to her ankles. She had suffered a gunshot wound to the head and she lay in a pool of blood. Nearby the pool of blood, a 22 caliber shell casing was found. The perpetrator had emptied the register and taken Glasgow's car keys. However, her car was found in the parking lot by investigators. Glasgow's murder was similar to the killings of many. A single female brunette store clerk shot execution-style with a 22 caliber pistol. There didn't seem to be the motive other than possible robbery, and the killer left with a trophy, just like the I-70 killer. However, Ballistics wouldn't match. The previous spree of killings in Texas investigators rejected the notion that these killings were committed by the same perpetrator. Amy Vets, age 20, went to work at the Register at Dancer's Closet, a dance apparel store located at 4001 West Green Oaks in Arlington, Texas. This location was only a short drive away from the scene of Glasscock's murder. Similar to Nancy Kitzmiller, Amy was not meant to be working on that evening. She had been called into the dance shop to cover a shift. Sometime between 3 p.m. and 6.22 p.m., a stranger entered the store and ordered the woman to the back room there. He shot her twice, once in the neck, behind the left ear, and once in the back of the head. As he fled the store, he emptied the register of $200 and disappeared. One source reported that the neighboring store owner saw a strange man in the parking lot at 4 p.m. He was wearing a white headband. When investigators of the killings heard about Amy Vets, they were anxious to connect the cases. They identified the matching ammo and victim profile, proposing that ballistics didn't match because the killer had simply switched weapons. Again, Texas investigators were reluctant to connect the cases. They admitted there were similarities, but they remained unconvinced. Vicki Webb went to work. She worked at the Register at Alternative's gift shop. It was located in the Rice Village Shopping District across from Houston's Rice University. It was 10 a.m. that morning when a short man with shaggy hair estimated to be around 50 years old, entered the store briefly leaving only to return a little more than an hour later. He spoke at length with Webb. He told her his niece was on her way to meet him. Similar to his interaction with McCown he attempted to purchase an item, a small copper picture frame. During the transaction he shot Webb in the back of the neck and the bullet struck her between the second and third vertebrae. She was paralyzed from the waist down, but still alive. The man jumped the counter and emptied the register of $75. Then he pulled Webb's pants to her ankles just as he had done with glass. He put the gun to her head and pulled the trigger. But the gun misfired. He laughed at this. But before he could clear the jam, he was startled by a vehicle outside and fled. Webb was lucky as doctors discovered she had an abnormally large spine, which allowed her to rehabilitate after her injury. Regaining the ability to walk after just three weeks, Webb would be the only surviving victim investigators of the killings began to compare and piece together a profile of their perpetrator. Their physical description came from the surviving eyewitnesses. The perpetrator had lazy eyelids and he was described as looking sleepy. He was between 35 and 50 years old and at the time he had thinning red hair. He was of average build and height. He was regularly described as having a stubbled beard. In 2012, the St. Charles Police Department revealed additional information about the 22 caliber pistol used in the killing. They suggested it could have been an Interdeck, Scorpion or Irmaworky model ITI-22. The ammunition was CCI brand 22 caliber long rifle, copper-clad lead bullets. This ammunition and caliber are among the most popular in the United States. There was one distinguishing trait about the ammunition used in these killings. It contained traces of corundum and rouge. Corundum is an abrasive and rouge is a lubricant. This suggested that the perpetrator could have been employed as a machinist familiar with grinding or polishing metals. Alternatively, these materials are used in the maintenance of weapons. The rouge may have been used to clean the feed ramp for the pistol, or these materials could have been used in a process known as fire lapping. Fire lapping is when bullets are coated in a lubricated abrasive and fired through the barrel to clean or change the rifling of a weapon. As it remains criminal profiling will likely be necessary to identify suspects. The following is a limited profile of the I-70 killer. He targeted small stores off Interstate 70 and 35. These were not heavily trafficked establishments, which suggested that robbery was not a motive. Although he did take small amounts of cash from the registers at each scene store, names and sold goods suggested the stores would be operated by females, LeBron to Elegance and Sylvia Ceramics along with craft stores. Perhaps the killer was selecting these stores as they would have a higher potential for a victim who fit his preferred profile. The ritualism of these killings And the control exhibited by the killer, suggest he was an organized serial killer. These individuals are often characterized as having high intelligence, underemployment social competence, and more. They play in their offenses, often targeting strangers and they demand complete submission from their victims. While the prevailing theory is that these murders were simply opportunity, many of the characteristics suggest this killer was organized and methodical. The I-70 killer was a spree killer operating in short bursts, before going dormant. This demonstrates the killer was capable of regulating his urges. Some speculate that the long distances suggested that he may have been a traveling salesman, truck driver or construction subcontractor. If this is the case, his vehicle was likely branded for business and would have been easily recognizable at every crime scene and by neighbors. It has been suggested that the killer parked in these residential areas and walked to the crime scene only to avoid his vehicle being spotted. After the commission of a crime, This would imply that the I-70 killer was somewhat familiar with his intended targets and the areas surrounding his potential crime scenes could have been scouted beforehand. Perhaps these killings weren't acts of pure spontaneity. Perhaps the I-70 killer surveilled these stores, selecting employees who fit his profile, and returning at another date to commit his crime. The bullets of his weapon had objection marks suggesting that the killer was using a weapon with a high-capacity ammo clip. This means he arrived at the scene. Prepared to shoot much more than one or two bullets. In 2021, the St. Charles Police Department renewed their efforts to crack this cold case. They released an age progressed police sketch and reunited the original agencies involved in the investigation. They sent samples for DNA testing, as technological innovations allow for improved testing of trace evidence. The results are still pending. Additionally, investigators received a new lead connected to a similar crime in 2001 the convenience store robbery and murder of Clerk. Billy Brosman. This murder occurred just seven blocks away from the murder of Michael McCown. Although the crime was featured on America's Most Wanted, it has never been solved. Police have stated that there are similarities between the cases, but ballistics don't match the 1992 murders. Others have suggested that deceased serial killer Neil Falls could have been the I-70 killer. In 2015, Falls attempted to abduct and sexually assault a girl called Heather. She was in her home in West Virginia during the attempted abduction she managed to break free and fatally shot falls. When investigating the crime scene, police found handcuffs, knives, bulletproof vests, shovels, machetes, hammers, and more. Police connected objects in his vehicle to nine other murdered women, some of whom were located in Illinois Falls. He was in his 20s at the time of the 1992 murders living in Kansas. He resembled the police sketches and matched the physical descriptions. He was an organized serial killer with a hatred for women. In 2018 police tested some of his belongings, but investigators found no definitive connection to the killings. Interstate highways run like veins through America, traffic coursing through cities and small towns. But they can be part of a dark underbelly, with the absolute anonymity, and with the easy access. These highways are frequent hunting grounds for monsters. The I-70 killer was one of those monsters, preying on victims alongside the interstate. And hauntingly, he's still out there, somewhere.